From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If there's one thing the recent election exposed, it's how much harder it is to vote in some states than others. You're more eligible to vote in Colorado than you are in Mississippi. That's a fact. It's easier to vote in Colorado than it is in Texas. (laughs) That's a fact. Um, And so finally, everybody has kind of seen that there's these huge disparities. Amber McReynolds used to run Denver's elections. Now she leads a national nonprofit focused on more convenient ways to vote. And she's not daunted by the distrust some have of the presidential results. She thinks it's a chance to improve things. I feel like elections are kind of the core opportunity to bring both sides together to say, you didn't trust it. We didn't think there was enough access. What are the commonalities that we can come together on to get something done? Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 2020 election held in the midst of a pandemic exposed disparities in how Americans cast their ballots. Coloradans who can vote at home were gobsmacked to see hours-long lines in other states. Despite assurances from experts that the election was secure and many court rulings now affirming that, Polls show a distrust of the system, especially among President Trump's supporters. So we're going to spend the first part of today's show reflecting on how we got here and what improvements might come to the voting system out of this chapter. Joining me as a co-host for this segment is our resident election nerd, Megan Verlee. Her formal title is public affairs editor. She also oversees Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. I think I would like to have election nerd actually on my business cards in the future. Okay. I like that title. We'll talk to the front mm-hmm. office about that. I would actually like you to introduce our guest. Will you do that? Absolutely. I suggested her because she is a homegrown expert in how states across the country run their elections and what they could be doing differently. Amber McReynolds is the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute. She's based in Denver. And for years, she was Denver's elections director, including during the time when Colorado was transitioning to all-male ballot elections. So, Amber, welcome to the show. Hi, Megan. It's great to be here. It's really nice to have you, Amber. I'd actually like to start with an observation from a voter in Denver. Tom Olesnovich tweeted us this, that it's 2020 and there's such a wide disparity in how we vote is frankly embarrassing. Uh, Amber, do you agree with Tom's assessment? Well, yeah. So the United States is a very decentralized system. So it's up to each state to set the rules uh, of the game, if you will, with regards to elections. And there's about 9,000 different local election offices that run this process. So it's extremely, yeah, it's extremely decentralized. And so that's really why we see such disparities. And I completely agree. I think that we need to have a, a conversation nationally about what sort of consistencies there should be at the federal level, obviously not trampling on states' rights to 
run the process necessarily, but there should be more consistent rules so that voters are not uh, treated so differently by state. How did we get to this system? And what's the argument on the other side for not just setting up one universal law for the for the country around elections? Well, in the Constitution, it allocates responsibility for running the election process to states. And Congress has always been pretty hesitant to um, do much mandating at the federal level. However, there have been multiple examples, you know, starting with the 19th Amendment, which gave and expanded the rights for women, then the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, then the National Voter Registration Act, then the Help America Vote Act, which came right after 2000, 20 years ago, we, we got the Help America Vote Act because of Florida. Um, and then there's been multiple bills at the federal level about military and overseas voters as well. So there's precedent for Congress to weigh in on federal elections that still leaves local elections up to states in terms of the rules. But uh, there certainly is precedent for um for congressional action on creating more consistency. And I truly believe that that conversation is very important because right now, if you're a voter in Colorado, you frankly have more access, more rights, uh, more options to vote than you do if you're a voter in Texas. So does the federal government have jurisdiction or, or uh, authority to, to step in and set rules specifically that make it easier for voter participation? Is that like one of the motivations they can act on? It, they could. So, it you know, it, it, Congress has authority to uh, regulate, if you will, uh, federal elections. So that's kind of why the National Voter Registration Act and, and the Help America Vote Act and, you know, certain standards came into being because of those because of those monumental pieces of legislation. And what we you know, what there still is disparity on. And this is a good example. Many states still limit options for request just requesting an absentee ballot you have to prove an excuse or get a notary or in texas if you're over 65 it's one set of rules if you're under 65 you have to have an excuse over 65 you don't so some of these states have you know overly restricted uh, deadlines options for voters all of that more so than other states and that's really where i think we have to have this conversation of what what minimum standard makes sense and what sh- what kind of consistency should we be talking about so that so that there is more uh, consistency across states, um, just so that voters aren't so confused? Because that's one of the other issues that's happened this year is just the monumental amount of misinformation, partly because the rules are so different by state. So Congress could set that minimum requirement and say, states, you have to meet at least this and then, you know, uh, be as creative as you want to be from there. Uh, Amber, on Tuesday, President Trump fired the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Uh, This is a gentleman who had previously declared the recent election the most secure in American history. Uh, I don't want you to weigh in on the firing, uh, but do you think that the characterization that the 2020 election was really quite secure do you think that's an accurate portrayal? I do, actually. And Chris Krubs is a friend, and I've known him for a long time. And his his professional demeanor and his role at CISA uh, was independent, and he was collaborative. He worked with Republicans and Democrats all across the country. And his team is really the reason why we don't have some of the same 
national and cybersecurity uh, conversations and threats in this election cycle that we did in 2016, yeah. because they've spent the last four years building an infrastructure to monitor myths and disinformation. They've helped set states harden their systems, make them more resilient. So they're really heroes, and, and Chris Krebs certainly is. So that firing is, is very suspect, given the success that CISA has had across all measures. Um, and I do agree with CISA, and by, by the way, that statement was from a bipartisan, uh, the bipartisan uh, government coordinating council that includes Republican and Democratic secretaries of state that all agree that yes, in fact, this this election, this presidential election was the most secure because of a lot of these measures that have been put in place since the 2016 election. I had thought that sort of in my gut that there seemed to be fewer direct attacks from Russia on the election system itself. I'm not speaking here to the dis or misinformation, but uh, you're confirming that there there was less of that in 2020 than in 2016, just briefly. Yes. And then the second thing I would say is there were also more paper ballots cast as the official record in this election cycle than previous. So many states upgraded their voting systems since 2016, uh, which is which has enabled more advanced auditing of the election and the results. So that's also part of the reason for the statement being true. So it's interesting. That was a, a bipartisan panel that released that assessment that this was the most secure in American history, because certainly views of this election have become uh, and its security have become incredibly partisan. There was a, a poll earlier this month that found 70 percent of Republicans don't think the election was free and fair. Uh, President Trump has continued to repeat claims uh, along those lines. I, I'm, I get his text messages for donations, and they're about six a day uh, claiming that the election was was fraudulent. Uh, I think that some of this uh, comes down to this uh, public misunderstanding, potentially dangerous public misunderstanding, that uh, people think elections are either 100% flawlessly conducted or they're invalid. And what we're seeing right now around the country is that there's there's actually some gray area in that, right? Absolutely. And as I mentioned, there's 9,000 different local election offices that run this process There's more than half a million people that served as poll workers and, you know, were part of this process. Is there human error? Yes. And everything that we've seen that has been turned into some other conspiracy has been human error. And so, you know, as I've always said, one of the great things that we did in Colorado is, you know, by expanding vote at home options, we reduced the number of election workers required to run the process. So that that reduction happened quite substantially. And honestly, with less kind of polling places and all of the um, different field operations that used to happen in the process, there's less errors because there's less people um, and less, you know, trained uh, folks that are people that need to have training in the field. So mitigating that risk of human error is a big part of making the election system more resilient. Uh, And, you know, that's really why when, you know, you're right, Megan, that, you know, people are sort of setting up this false equivalent of 100% right or nothing at all. And that's just not accurate. And I think the other thing about this is that a lot of very small administrative issues are being dramatized to be some sort of conspiracy when it's not. Um, And then I think this election also has shown that people's trust in the outcome of the election is very much driven by whether or not their guy won. 
And that's a problem, right? We've got to, we've got to figure out a better way around that. Now, Colorado, I think because we have made the process so much better for voters, but also more secure and enhanced uh, customer service and all of that, you know, I, we haven't seen the same uh, vitriol or um, uh, misinformation as much here because I think both sides of the aisle agree that it's a good system. Um, but, you know, a lot of parts of the country, swing states especially, there is a really awful narrative going back and forth. I, I can't, I won't even go into all of my election official friends that have been, you know, had death threats and everything else uh, thrown their way, regardless of their party affiliation. So um, it's, it's pretty bad this year. Just based on the history that you sketched out for us, Amber, it sounds like moments of meltdown create moments of opportunity. So the Florida hanging Chad moment led to some legislation. Uh, And I wonder if you think that the distrust we are seeing now is also an opportunity to improve the system. To that end, listener Diane Morse raises this question. Is it possible for all states to use the same method to count votes and which would be the most secure? Well, so uh, one of the issues around security, and this was actually flagged after 2016, was some level of decentralization can actually make the system more resilient. Some many, many cybersecurity and election security experts say that. Uh, so we don't want to have a scenario where every state is using the exact same system. It, it would be it would it would be potentially challenging given the number of local offices that run the process and the reliance that, that many of the small jurisdictions especially have on the technology providers to help them. But uh, what we have in Colorado is we have what's called a central uh, count scanning environment. Okay. So that means that every ballot in Colorado, whether it be a mail ballot or an in-person ballot cast at one of the vote centers goes to a central environment in each county. So 64 different locations. It's monitored by camera, 24 by seven. Bipartisan teams run the process. They use scanners to scan all the paper ballots. And then we conduct risk limiting audits to validate the outcomes and, and, and the system. So I believe that process is far superior to many in other states. Um, And that is, you know, I think that other states can certainly learn from Colorado. And there's other examples in other states where they've improved their process. And so I think that's what we have to continuously do is look for ways to improve, look for best practices, opportunities to further enhance transparency, security, and also uh, spend time educating the public on what this process looks like more so than we ever have. So one element of this process is that I think, you know, I don't know how many states, most many, it's run by partisans. I mean, Colorado uh, elects a secretary of state who's affiliated with the party. Right now it's uh, Jenna Griswold. She's a, a very vocal Democrat. Uh, you look at Georgia, where there's so much fighting about uh, election conduct. You've got a, a Republican secretary of state there, his party affiliation, of course, becoming very prominent as he's had to fight with members of his own party. Uh, do you think it undermines trust that uh, the person running an election is affiliated with one of the parties putting up candidates in that election? I, I do actually, and I've I've said this for a long period of time, and even going back to my time in Denver, I was unaffiliated, and I always have remained unaffiliated. I never endorsed candidates, or you know, publicly put anything on my my Facebook pages or anything about 
who I supported during that time because I just strongly believe in my heart of hearts that I was more effective at my job if I was able to build trust on both sides of the aisle, run the process in a nonpartisan way, not be at campaign events and party meetings and all this other stuff, right? So I do think that our, um, I think it is a risk in our election system that partisan politics finds its ugly head into this process. And it should be a technical process free from that. Uh, this is a, I kind of, the analogy I always use is, you know, you want a referee uh, overseeing this process, not one of the coaches, not the team setting the rules, not the owners of the team setting the rules. And that's really the risk that you have when you have uh, folks running the process, making decisions in the process that are tied to one side or the other. Because frankly, no matter what Jenna Griswold does, uh, just like no matter what Scott Gessler or Wayne Williams did, the other side is always going to have a distrust simply because of that R or D after their name. So that's that's kind of the challenge. And so I do think that one of the other lessons to be learned out of this election cycle, and this is something I've talked about for, gosh, going on 10 years now, um, is, is this concept of nonpartisan governance in the election process. What does accountability look like? What do the ethics rules look like? Uh, what should be allowed? What shouldn't be allowed? Um, you know, and, and that has to be a broad national conversation about what may or may not work. So there's different models in, in various states. Fascinating an ethics conversation around this, which we often equate with judges, perhaps, or other sorts of public mm-hmm. officials. You mentioned Williams and Gessler. Those are two former Colorado secretaries of state uh, with R's behind their names. Um, are red states or blue states more or less likely to embrace vote by mail? Amber, how much is that a partisan thing? Well, it hasn't been up until this year when there were certain tweets that started earlier this year. But, uh, you know, our neighbor, Utah, has had vote by mail now for two years. They expanded it at the legislative level. They have, they're clearly not a purple state. They're a red state. And they've been expanding it for multiple years. Montana, almost 97, maybe over 97% of voters in Montana received a ballot automatically this year before the election. They have the highest turnout they've ever had, and Republicans won up and down the entire ballot in Montana. North Dakota and Nebraska have been expanding it for years. Uh, Florida was one of the first pioneers to really push vote by mail in a significant way, as was Arizona. And when I say push, I mean the parties encouraging people to uh, vote by mail. And, you know, for many years, Republicans in both of those states led on people voting by mail in those states. So this has not been a, a partisan issue until this year when it was politicized, very similar to the post office being politicized. Um, and, you know, there's so many benefits to the system we have in Colorado. And that's really why states, so many states have expanded it before 2020, but certainly expanded it more so in the pandemic. Just to flip that, do you see blue states that are reluctant to go to vote by mail? Yes, I've had (laughs) I have had many conversations with New York and Illinois um, on this topic. And part of it, you know, those states are have been blue for a long period of time, have trifectas in their legislative bodies. New York, for the first time this year, offered early voting and no excuse absentee. They've never offered that before. Mm. They're also known for their seven hour lines on election day, just like they had in 2018. Um, so, you know, New York is a good example of a state that offered this for the first time. I mean, they've had very restrictive voting laws in New York and they're a very blue state. 
And we can, we can kind of map that back to the uh, sort of political power structure more than anything. It's not necessarily one party or another, but it's who's in power, who has power, and who wants to keep things the way that elected them. Kind of old political machines. You know. Amber, yeah. we're, we're getting close to our time here, but I wanted you to address something that the president and his supporters have really uh, been pushing lately, which is, which are debunked claims about a Denver company, uh, Dominion Voting Services. Uh, it makes voting equipment used ar- around the country and in many of the states that the president's focused on. Uh, you weighed in on this earlier tweeting, don't be fooled by conspiracies and disinformation. Instead, rely on trusted sources of information like election officials. Well, as a former election officials, can you shed some light on how Dominion became a target? And, and is there like a big claim made against it that you would like to just push back on? We have about uh, a little, little over a minute, Amber. Sure. Well, it, it all started with an administrative mistake in Michigan. So a clerk in a fairly small county um, was sort of uploaded incorrectly. She basically made an administrative mistake with, with pushing her results out. And that created this whole conspiracy of there's a software glitch. Well, there was no software problem. She made an administrative mistake. And then it, it kind of has, has transpired into more partly because Maricopa, Clark County in Nevada, and then Georgia use Dominion. So does Colorado. So does 28 or 28 total states use it. Oh. Um, but it's sort of, cons- it's sort of transpired into this full conspiracy simply because of an administrative mistake. Um, and there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation, inaccurate information about all of it. Many of it's been debunked on the CISA DHS rumor control website. And then the company has also put out pointed, you know, point by point kind of uh, responses to this, as have many election officials. So that's really the issue. I mean, my uh, we had a great experience working with Dominion in Denver. Mm. They're used in most of the state in Colorado. Um, they're a highly professional, competent, um, very talented team of of people that uh, their focus is always on providing good support to their customers and by extension voters. And, you know, I've always known them to have high integrity and it's unfortunate to see uh, them targeted in this way. I think this reflects on something you said earlier, Megan, which is that instances of flaws, of mistakes can very quickly get blown out of proportion Uh, and turned into rulings on the system as a whole. Thanks to both of you, Amber McReynolds and CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. The world has lost a giant. That's how Governor Jared Polis described the death of Fanny Starr. Starr was Colorado's oldest living Holocaust survivor until her passing last month at age 98. Just this year, she had helped pass a state law that requires schools to teach about genocide in hopes of preventing another Holocaust. In light of Starr's passing, let's listen back to our 2017 conversation. We met at her Denver home, a warning that her descriptions are graphic. Fanny Starr was about 19 or 20 and remembers lying in a field at Auschwitz under a reddish sky and feeling something fall on her. Ashes. The ashes fell. was no hail, was no snow, ashes. What do you remember thinking at that point? We didn't know what is what. We just sat like numb and see what happened because we didn't know what is our future waiting for us. 
If we be annihilated, if we let it live. Because when we came to Auschwitz, Mengelis, he did the selection. This I cannot recall. Either I went right for a working place, either some people went left to the guest chambers in the ball of fire. You mentioned Mengele. This is Dr. Mengele, who, yeah. who was a doctor at Auschwitz. Yeah, I, I can see him each time when you're talking about this black uniform. And he was famous for his yeah, just god-awful was. experiments at yeah. Auschwitz. Yeah. What do you remember about being in that line? We were marching to a big warehouse and they stripped our civilian clothes. And after shaved my hair, not just everybody's hair, whoever came over there in that big place. And myself and my sister, when we were just couldn't recognize each other, and we were shouting, her name was Renya, my name is Fela. And this way we found each other. And after that, we lined up and went in a big, huge field, laying probably a week, maybe longer, outside on the ground. And just cry and cry. You were separated from the rest of your family at Auschwitz? Oh, sure. Just me and her. More together. You're, you're pointing to a photo yeah, of your my, sister that's my sitting sister, near us. Yeah. The rest of them went. I didn't know where they went that time. We found out after the war. What did you find out? Who's alive, who was dead, and all the catastrophic things that they did to humanity. Because to be in the camps was to be very isolated. So it was, isolated. it was hard to know what was going on in Absolute. the rest of the world. You, you just woke up. You could go days not washed. Days without washing. Yeah. Well, why don't we step back just a little bit? Can we do that? Yeah. You were born and raised about three hours away from where they built Auschwitz. Yeah. In Woj, Poland. To think that home was so close, but so far away. What do you remember about your childhood in Woj? What I remember, be very active, belong to the youth group, go two, three times a week. There were five children, and uh, your family operated a grocery store, is that yeah. right? Yeah, uh-huh. And later on, your family was in the tannery business. Yeah, took that skin... And they preserved it. And after that, went to a special factory where they make hard soles for shoes. Hard soles for shoes? Yeah. And your family did well. Yeah, after that, we became pretty good off. Pretty good off. Till Hitler came in 1939, everything fell apart. 1939. Your yeah. family was forced into the Jewish ghetto in Woj yeah. after the Nazi invasion. You were a teenager. Yeah. And what was it like in the ghetto? This was one of the largest ghettos in Europe, I believe. Yeah, they brought uh, lots of people from small towns because small towns didn't have no trains. And my big city had huge train going to whole Europe. 
So Woj was was connected to the rail and and thus efficient yeah. for the Germans. And you were there in the ghetto for I think five years. From nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty four. And after that we went to Auschwitz. Auschwitz. What was life like in the ghetto? Misery, nothing to eat, a lot typhoids. Not typhoids, uh, diarrhea, what they're calling. Dysentery? Yeah. And the hundreds will die daily. The life in the ghetto was no life. Went to work, came home, and was confined. You had essentially a, a slave I job. worked in the ghetto and a shop for tailoring. But I didn't have no idea how to put a needle on a thimble and so forth and so on. Thanks to all the ladies, she was over there, she showed me how to use a thimble. After that, I work in another place. What I used to make from straw, dry straw, shoes for the military. And we all had bleeding hands because straw was dry and stiff. You would weave straw shoes? Yeah, we made shoes. And after that, I worked in a shop where they brought all the clothing from Auschwitz. We ripped it open. We have little scissors and little knives. Take the garments apart. Take the gold and diamonds and all Domination money from the whole world. That is, clothes would be sent back from the camps. Yeah, from Auschwitz the... brought it to Lodz. And these are the clothes that people would have been wearing to the camps and would have been stripped of, and they were hiding their belongings in those coats. Sure, everybody. It was in the shoulders, every place. We put the diamonds in big, huge jars, the gold pieces and big, huge barrels, wooden barrels, name it, and all the garments that you took apart, you have to select like the sleeve, like the front and the back, and make bundles and tie it and put it in a big pile. What were the conditions like in the ghetto? Tell me about... Dirty. Everything was limited. Food was limited. Sure. You're lucky if you could have a piece of horse meat. Do you remember being hungry a lot? <laughs> we were skeleton. How many days would you go without food? I was so undernourished, I couldn't walk no more. Hmm. Thanks to my father, he went and bought some a vitamin on the black market. Vitamins on the black yeah, market? Yeah, like a, yeah, what's black market in? And all the Pollocks came in and saw some. Thanks to that vitamin, I just started walking. Did you have nightmares? I have today nightmares. Then we didn't have nothing. It was not normal life. We were just scared. We didn't know any minute who could knock on the door and come take us. Mm -hmm. Did you feel human at that point? No. No? No. We try our best to do what we could do. 
People may hear a little scratching sound. That's it's you. This, that's this is your that's your <laughs> safety blanket there. It's just a, a, a Kleenex that you're rubbing. <laughs> Do you get a little nervous sometimes? This is nervous. It's nervous. <laughs> Do you remember if your parents talked to you much about what was going on? Nobody knew. Either you live, either you die. Did you see the death often up close? <laughs> you saw. You know, people were dying in the streets. And there was no burial place to where to take it. People buried the people picked up from the streets and taken to the cemetery. There was no horse, there was no buggy. They made their own thing and they took the people to the cemetery. It was just chaos. They took terrible chaos. They they made a makeshift cart of some kind. Yeah. And Jews did that for other Jews? Yeah, we saw it. It was a big epidemic in Lodz in that time. That was dysentery. Yeah, dysentery. Either you die from starvation, either you die from disease. You left the ghetto in 1944, again after nearly five years there. And you and much of your extended family were crammed onto a train car. Did you know where you were headed at that point? No. No. What do you remember about that ride? Crying, screaming. It was very full. Oh, terrible. It was September. And it was cold. Bitter cold. From the train, we went to that big warehouse, and they stripped, and they gave you the striped dress, no underwear, nothing, just a stress. So it this is at your arrival at Auschwitz, yeah. and you're handed those somewhat infamous uniforms, those striped uniforms. We didn't know. We didn't care. Who cared? We were just lost our will to live. You were not just at Auschwitz, but you were shuffled between a number of different camps. Oh, yeah. So I went on the train. Days we went back and forth, back and forth, till we arrived in Ravensbrück. At Ravensbrück. Yeah, I was lucky with talking about Ravensbrück. I just somehow I cut my hand here. You cut your hand uh, between your thumb and your forefinger. I don't know how and what, and got it affected. And they select me to go to the guest chamber. They saw the cut, and you were going to the DIS chamber. And he tried, convinced me. I spoke a little German, and I just, this is a disease. And I said, this is no disease. I cut myself, and this got infected. I said, you are a doctor. Surprised that he didn't smack me and take the gun and kill me because I was fighting with him. And he let me through, and he didn't kill me. I'll say that Ravensbrück, where that happened, was a camp for women that was north of the Berlin. They're just women. You also were at Milhausen. Yeah. Tell me about it. Milhausen, what I worked for the V2. V2. Th- these were the German rockets. Yeah. You ma- you helped make those? Sure. Parts. Hmm. And Milhausen, I went to the ladies' room. You didn't go on your own. God forbid. We was with a SS lady and a German shepherd. And I went into the ladies' room. I saw a, a paper. A newspaper. And when I picked paper, 
when you take it, shimmers, make noise. And she opened the door and dragged me out and beat me unhumanly. She beat you? Yeah. Why would you have been beaten for looking at the newspaper? They didn't find out any news. I was not looking for news. I was looking the day and the year. You didn't know what day or year it was? We didn't know which year, which day. It was nothing. We looked like unwanted people on this earth. But if you caught wind of what was happening, if you saw the headlines, that would have been empowering. And she didn't want that. Uh, it took a second. I picked it up, and in a second she was by the door. Forgive me, I was peeing and she just came in. <laughs> it's okay, you can say that on the radio. <laughs> My partner was the truth. And she came rushing across. I was curious, saying a paper. So you saw the date? Unfortunate, because she just came in. I see, it was too fast. From the archives, we're listening back to my conversation with Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr of Denver, who died at the end of October. British troops liberated Starr from the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp April 15, 1945, but it would be weeks before she understood what liberation even meant. When we come back, she tells us about being mad at God. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Benta Berklin from the CPR Newsroom. For this week's bonus episode of Purplish, we talked to two of Colorado's top political strategists, Democrat Craig Hughes. Where the Republican Party goes now will be very interesting to see if we are indeed a blue state. And Republican Josh Penry. Voters in Colorado are still kind of at their core a pretty discerning, mavericky lot. Purplish, the Colorado politics podcast from CPR News. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr, who died last month. We sat at her dining room table in Denver three years ago as her daughter prepared for Shabbat. It was still really painful for Starr to talk about her time in a Jewish ghetto, then in a string of concentration camps. She was careful not to use the name of one man in particular. He occupied... Hungary, Romania, Poland, so forth and so on. What could you do? He was a massive murder in the world. Hitler. Yeah. I don't want to mention his name. What did you call him? Himakshimo. Himakshimo. Yeah. This means, may his name be obliterated. Uh, Yeah, from this earth. In in Hebrew. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. This is how you refer to him when you refer to him. You know when? After the war. Matter of fact, we were in, in Kentucky when we came to the United States. A rabbi said this, and since then, it's very popular. So you learned this term from a rabbi once you came to the United States. This was, yeah. Did you think God existed at this time? No. I was very mad at my God. We were this... Chosen people, why he allowed this? You were mad at your God. I'm still mad at him. Yeah, I'm still not forgiven. 
Do you pray? No, I just keep it in my heart. Why? That word, why? Why we deserve it? What the crime we commit against humanity? I just annihilate a race. I became an atheist. You became an atheist? Yeah. In the camps? Yeah. Did, did After that, I got married. I had children. So you re-embraced Judaism when you became a mom. Is that right? For your kids? My husband did. He was more religious. I was born in a very modern home. He was more religious. The last camp... Was um, Bergen-Belsen. Was Bergen-Belsen, which the British liberated on yeah. April 15th, 1945. Yeah. It's just approaching pretty soon. Is that a date you hold dear? It's a big hole in my heart. A big hole in your heart. What do you remember about the, the troops liberating the camp? Who, Anything? Who knew? I didn't know. What do you mean? I didn't know I was liberated. The Red Cross came, and she said, you are free. Who cared? I was laying in bed, halfway dead. I just called myself many times, why did you let me live? What I deserve it. You thought that living was a cruelty at that point. Mm. It's interesting because I, I think of liberation as this joyful moment. Where? Right? Who? I didn't know we are liberated. I found out many weeks later. That's when you realized, Yeah. oh goodness, something has changed. Fanny, can you run through who you lost in the camps? My mom, my dad, my oldest sister, my youngest brother, uncles, aunts, cousins. The majority of your family. Yeah, just five left of us. Five made it out. Mm-hmm. How old were you when, when you were liberated? I approximately, I would say, 22. You say approximately. Is that because I you, just, I couldn't remember. You lost track know. of your age. That's right. You lost track of dates. You said it. Fanny, I want to talk to you about a chapter that I think is less well-known, certainly than the concentration camps, which is the displaced persons camps. You were there for some time. Yeah, uh, this was so Bergen-Belsen, was... The old camp, the barracks, everything was destroyed after. And we went to, like, military barracks. They had destroyed the concentration camp, and and you were transferred to this sort of military installation. You were still sick at that point. Oh, yeah. How long were you in the displaced persons camp? Do you remember? Wait a minute. We got 1945, 1948. We went to Israel. So three years you were there. Mm Mm-hmm. And what, what was life like there? So you got better. Not too many activities till I met my husband. You met your husband, yeah. Zessa Star. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Jewish is Zorach. Zorach Star. Yeah, it is Zorach Hashem. And he was in the displaced persons camp as well. What do you remember about meeting him? We just sit down and talk, and I was a ball of fire singing, dancing, and appealed to him. 
And that was it. <laughs> we fell in love. Did you get married in the displaced persons camp? Yeah. You see this. What is this? The talus. The talus. This is the I got married. almost kind of scarf-like item that you wear in synagogue. Yeah. Yeah. This is our chuppah. Four guys had four sticks. So this was put up above your heads as yeah. you got married yeah. in the camp. In the camp. And you had your first daughter in, in the displaced persons camp. She just turned 70. She just turned 70. Yeah. But eventually you had to make plans to get out of there. We made place. We went to Israel. Israel. Yeah. Hmm. My husband's profession was a tailor. And his profession didn't go too well over there. We couldn't find a job. So came back to the camp. Wait, you went to Israel and then you came back to a displaced persons camp? Yeah. Oh, my. And you eventually came to the United States. Yeah. In 1951. Did he land a job as a tailor here? Yeah. He did. He was not a tailor like today. He put a big cloth of fabric and chalk and rulers. I have the rulers. I have the chalk. Everything. These items are quite precious to you today. Do you think you could have married someone who hadn't also been in the concentration camps? No. This was my first love. If he be alive, I'll be married 71 years. No. Because there was a sense that he understood what you'd gone through, and you understood what he went through? Mm. Matter of fact, I have a friend who goes after me. I said, sorry. <laughs> Someone was after you recently, and you said no? No. Why? Play. I don't feel like I'm just very content with my children and myself. Do you still feel married to your husband? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Did you two talk about your experiences in the Holocaust? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, very much so. What would you say? That's the reason we start talking, and we belong to the ADL. The Anti-Defamation League. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We went to school, started going to schools. You and he started talking in we schools about the we Holocaust. We were the first one start talking in the schools. Here in Denver? Yeah. And after that went nationwide. What year? Do you remember? In 1967. Why did you want to talk about it to kids? We have to tell the people what we went through. You're still speaking in schools today? Yeah. Fanny, what are you most grateful for today? Grateful I am. I have my children. I lost my beautiful son. Thanks to her. Your, your daughter, who's yeah. sitting at the table with us. She is, and my oldest daughter, and my great-grandchildren, my great-sons. My great Two great-sons. And friends going out. And friends. I created a little group. We started you know, gambling a little bit. A little and gambling. Op- yeah, just. You know, we have to just pass it on our that time someplace. Have you been back to Poland or Germany? No desire. No desire? No, to Poland for sure not. Mm-hmm. The Polacks were very anti-Semite against the Jews before. Do you sometimes wonder how you survived? Don't ask. You're asking a very simple question. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ask all of them. 
the same way they would say, I think nobody knew what and when and how. Maybe they will. Maybe he did it. Looking up at God there. Yeah. Or you, you said maybe it's will. And I just believe in humanity. I'm feeding homeless people for many, many years. And I became a humanitarian, and I care for humanity. Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr, who died last month at age 98. We spoke in 2017 at her Denver home. Starr helped pass a state law earlier this year to ensure Colorado students learn about genocide and to make true the words never again. Thank you for spending time with us. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. We are CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.